Well, let me tell you something that um, you probably are already aware of. Sometimes we don't feel like this is uh, true, but it certainly is true. And it is simply to say that you and I live in um, the most, or certainly one of the most prosperous societies in the world. It's true. Uh, The least prosperous person among us, I'm talking about financial prosperity, the least prosperous person in the room today is worlds more prosperous than most people all around the globe. We are. We live in a very affluent society, and that, that is a great benefit and privilege in our lives. But it also brings some attendant problems with it. And one of the problems of living with such affluence as we do is that affluence tends to skew our understanding of what it means to be blessed by God. And so what happens is when you're surrounded by and living with prosperity or, or a, a measure of wealth as we do um, every single day, it, it, we tend to begin to gauge God's blessings on the basis of what measure of wealth or material gain or good circumstances that we have. So we begin to think things like, well, that person's really blessed because they have a lot. And those people are a little, are a little less blessed because they don't have as much. And so it, it just kind of comes with living in this culture. We start viewing these kinds of things, money, possessions, good circumstances in life, as the, as the measure of God's blessing. However, if you read the eight pronouncements of blessing that Jesus made in the Beatitudes, that measure, that gauge of blessing goes out the window. It just doesn't work. Because when Jesus talked about being blessed by God in the Beatitudes, the blessings he mentioned had nothing to do with health, wealth, or well-being. I mean, you can simply read them in Matthew 5, beginning in verse number 3. He talked about being blessed to enter the kingdom of heaven. He talked about the blessing of comfort or the blessing of a future inheritance of the earth. He talked about the blessing of mercy, the blessing of a testimony, being called God's children, the blessing of seeing God and seeing his work. The blessing of uh, being, having a great reward in heaven or being filled with righteousness. I mean, these blessings that Jesus talked about have nothing to do with how much money you have in the bank. They have nothing to do with how much property or what vehicles you own or what your portfolio is. Nothing to do with any of those things. And in fact, if those had been the blessings, if the blessings that Jesus was commending to us had to do with health, wealth, and well-being then the prescription that he gave for how you receive those blessings wouldn't have made much sense. (laughs) Because think about it. He talked about blessed are the poor in spirit, right? Blessed are the meek. Blessed are they that mourn. I mean, these aren't the descriptors that you would normally attach to a person who feels like they're going to really get ahead in this world. And so what we need to do, and particularly living in the society that we live in, what we need to do is is we need to reorient our minds to have a kingdom mindset. And that means that we're going to cast off this 
this view that we sometimes take, which is a materialistic view of blessing. If God gives me stuff, he's blessing me. And we need to throw off this sometimes humanistic view of how those blessings are received. And we need to reorient our thinking, clean the lenses of the way we view life, live with a kingdom mindset so that we will know that regardless of our circumstances in life, that we in the kingdom can call ourselves blessed. That means that the grieving widow and the, and the parent that weeps by the grave of her child or his child or the friend that has just laid to rest their best friend in life, that those grieving people can say, even in the midst of their grief, I am blessed of God. It means that the person who's dealing with severe illness, who's battling cancer or some chronic disease, that that person in the midst of their suffering can say, I am the blessed of God. It means, means that the single mom who's struggling to make ends meet and sometimes barely scraping together enough to put food on the table for her kids, that she can in, the, in that circumstance say, I am blessed by God. Because whether or not I'm blessed is not a measure of how much I have. It means that the weak and the lonely and the outcast can can say that I have been blessed. And it also means that we can look beyond our own borders here in the United States. And we can say that the, the suffering Christian in a third world nation, the suffering Christian in, a, in a, an Islamic prison, the suffering Christian in some place in the world where Christianity is outlawed and, and Christians are persecuted, that that Christian, enjoying none of the blessings that we have in this Society can say, I am blessed of God. And by the way, the reason we can say this is because while we live in this world and we, we suffer in this broken world, this world is not our home. Amen? We are kingdom people living in a fallen world. And so as the king's kid, as a person of the kingdom, I can be blessed even in the hardships of a broken world. And so with that sort of beginning to reorient our mindsets today, I want to welcome you to week number two of this series that we are calling Blessed, or Blessed, whichever you prefer. Last week, we began looking through these uh, Beatitudes by uh, beginning to think, first of all, about the Sermon on the Mount. I introduced to you the concept of the Sermon on the Mount last week. We talked about why Jesus preached the sermon, what the theme and the meaning and the purpose of the sermon uh, was and is. And last week we did something really, really important. At least I hope you did this with me. I tried to do this. And that is that we embraced the call, the Lord's call on our lives to be salt and light in our world. Let me show it to you again. It's Matthew 5, verses 13 and 14. Here's the call. Jesus says to people in the kingdom, you are the salt of the earth, verse 13. And then he says in verse 14, you are the light 
of the world. Now, we didn't just read that and say, well, that's nice. And we really believe that's a nice little saying. You could just tweet that or put that up on your Instagram post. And that's kind of a nice thing for Christians to say. No, no, we embraced it, man. We said, look, this is what God has called us to be, that we are to flavor this world with the the taste of heaven and that we are to illuminate this world with the light of heaven. It is our responsibility. And we learned last week how you do that. And you do it by embracing the attitudes, the beatitudes of the kingdom. In fact, here's the principle we learned last week. Jot it down somewhere in your notes. It is to say that I flavor the world with a taste of heaven and I illuminate the world with the light of heaven when I embrace the attitudes of the kingdom of heaven. Let me personalize that. When you go to work tomorrow, whether it's in an office building or on a job site or at a bank or in a hospital or teaching in a classroom, or when you go to your classroom as a student, you are walking into an environment filled with people who are people of this world and they are not of the kingdom. And everything in that environment is of this world. And Jesus said, here's what you are to do. You're to flavor that environment with the salt, the flavor of heaven. You're walking into that dark environment. You are to bring the light of heaven into that. And how do you do it? You do it when you begin to take on, to embrace the attitudes of the kingdom of heaven that we see and we read in the Beatitudes. That's where we began last week. And then we briefly considered the first two Beatitudes. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And blessed are are they that mourn, for they shall be comforted. And praise God for nine people who prayed to receive Christ as their Savior last Sunday. Three the Sunday before that. A dozen people came to faith in Jesus in the last two Sundays and maybe more today. I hope so. I hope if you don't know Jesus, today will be the day that you'll put your trust in him. Today, we are moving on to the third beatitude. We're only going to look at the third beatitude today. And I will tell you that my plan had been to do beatitudes three and four today, but there's just not enough time to get it all in. So I'm going to read one verse to you. Matthew 5, verse number 5. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. That's my text. Now, some of you, I know right now, you're thinking, he just read one verse. We are getting out of church early today. Trust in the Lord, my friend. Just trust in the Lord. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Jot this down. Jesus said very simply, blessed are the meek. Blessed are the meek. (laughs) By the way, can you imagine the confusion and quite honestly the disappointment that must have washed over Jesus' listeners when he says to them these words, blessed are the meek. Let me remind you of exactly who it is that's listening to Jesus. Many of these listeners of Christ are the people who have been the followers of John the Baptist. And now they have begun to be disciples of Jesus. They've begun to follow Jesus. And they heard what John said about this Messiah who was coming. They heard the descriptions of his glory and his majesty and his power. 
I mean, John said things about this Messiah that were like, he's exalted higher than me. He was before me. He's higher than me. I'm not even worthy to unlace his shoes. He said, I baptize you with water. He's going to baptize you with fire and with the Holy Ghost. He said, make straight the paths because the king is coming. I mean, they were looking for the king to come as their Messiah. They had heard John talk about Jesus, the Messiah. And they had gotten ready. They believed that the kingdom was coming. They had repented. They had been baptized. Many of them had. They were, they were ready for the king. I mean, no doubt, some of them, not all of them, but some of them surely were there the day that Jesus was baptized. And they heard with their own ears God speak from heaven, the voice of God audibly from heaven, saying of Jesus, this is my son, God, Emmanuel. God has come to earth. They'd heard Jesus preach. They'd heard him speak. They'd, they'd heard him speak with authority like no person had ever spoken before. And my goodness, they had seen the miracles that Jesus did. They had seen the lame healed and the blind to see and the, and the dead were being raised. And, and, and the mir- some of them had been healed themselves by what he had done. Or maybe their children or loved ones had been healed. Here's what they knew. They had seen and heard the power and the miracles and the message, and they knew he is the Messiah. This Jesus is the king. He is surely the Messiah. And they all came to this opening message from their Messiah, this opening address to the multitudes. They all came to hear him talk about the kingdom. And by the way, they all came with their predisposed expectations. They all expected him to say the things that they wanted him to say. The Pharisees among them, the religious leaders among them, they wanted a Messiah that would be a legalistic Messiah, right? They were looking for one who would, yeah, deliver them from Rome, sure. But what was of primary importance to them was that they, that this Messiah would bring up the spiritual value, the, the, the uh, legalistic obedience of the Jewish people. And that he would impose a heavy hand of, of religious strict adherence to the law on the Jewish people. That's what they expected and wanted. The zealots among them, the zealots were those who were trained in fighting. They were the uh, Jewish um, uh, insurrectionists, if you will. They were good with swords and they were trained for battle and they wanted to overthrow Rome. And you know what they wanted in the Messiah? They expected a miraculous Messiah who would lead their ranks in this miraculous overthrow of the Roman Empire. They wanted to be like the Maccabees again and yet even more powerful and overthrow Rome. That's what they were looking for. And the people, I mean, just the people in general, they were looking for a Messiah who would just lift their heads and cast off the shackles of Roman Empire. But whether you were a Pharisee or a zealot or just an average, ordinary person, these expectations all demanded that the Messiah would assert his authority, that he would draw a sword and they would impose his will and put their enemies under his feet. That was their expectation. And they all gather and they're leaning in and they're listening to every word. And he begins very early in his address and he says, blessed are the meek. Do you think maybe they went, what did he say? Did he say meek? Surely he said, blessed are the 
warriors or blessed are the mighty. Surely blessed are the brave. Surely he didn't say blessed are the meek. Because they knew what meekness meant, just like you know what meekness means. They knew that to be meek meant to be gentle, to be humble, to be kind. They knew that to be meek meant to be courteous to others. And many of them believed mistakenly what many people in our culture believe mistakenly. And that is to say that they believed that to be meek was to be weak. That only the weak people lived with a meek disposition. I want to say to you that they were wrong about that. And if you think that, you're wrong as well. The meek are not weak. There's nothing weak about people who live with meekness. In fact, here's a good definition. I hope you'll write it down in your notes. It is that meekness is strength under control. Meek people, by definition, are strong. But their strength is restrained. Their power is restrained. Let me illustrate it for you this way. Do you know what a kitten is in your lap? When you have a little tiny kitten in your lap and you're just stroking that, that head and back of that kitten and she's just nuzzling up and purring in your lap, that kitten in your lap is weak, man. It's weak. It can't do anything. It can't fight anything. It can't defend itself. It's absolutely weak. Kittens are weak. But that kitten's cousin... The lion, fully grown, with paws bigger than my hands, shoulders reaching up to four, three and a half, four feet, even taller sometimes when they're walking on all fours. That fully grown lion, tamed and walking beside his trainer, you know what that is? That ain't weak, man. That's meek. Because all of the power in those paws and all of the strength in those jaws and all of the might in that animal is restrained. That's meekness. It's like a puppy under your feet. A, a puppy under your feet is a helpless little animal. It's, it's, just, it's just doodling around and has no power at all. A, a puppy under your feet is weak. But a stallion, under your saddle. Now that's meek. Because that stallion, that horse, has great power and great speed and can flare its nostrils and cover much ground and lead the force in battle and do great works. But that bronco has been broken. The saddle has been put on it and all of its power has been brought under control. Do you understand the difference? Meekness is not weakness. Meekness is power under control. Now, did you know, by the way, that the Bible says that during his days, his time, Moses was the meekest man on the earth. Did you know that? Look at it. Numbers chapter 12 and verse 3 says it plainly. Now, the man Moses was very meek. He was more meek than all the people who were on the face of the earth. Wow. It's quite a testimony. The man Moses... The Bible says was the most meek man of his day, and yet it was this meek Moses who stood before Pharaoh and demanded that this king let the Israelites go, boldly. 
it was this Moses who came down off the mountain with the two tablets of stone and because the people were rebelling, he threw them down in anger and broke them and demanded that they decide whether they were going to serve God or not. Who's on the Lord's side, he said. Nothing timid about Moses. Nothing weak and shying and retreating about Moses. It was Moses that demanded and, and, and led Israel into battle against great enemies. And yet, this, this bold and courageous and mighty leader was meek. Most meek man of his day. And we have a better example than Moses, by the way. That's Jesus. Jesus described himself as being meek. Look at Matthew 11 and 29. It says, Jesus says, take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I am meek and lowly in heart. And you shall find rest for your souls. This is how Jesus self-described. You know, if, if you said to Jesus, hey, Jesus, tell me your story. Tell me what you're all about. Tell me what you're like. He would have said, listen, I'm, I'm meek. I'm gentle. I'm lowly. And yet, it was Jesus who twice in his ministry went into the temple and turned over the tables of the money changers and made a, a whip and drove the money changers out of the temple. Meek and mild Jesus did that. It was this meek Jesus who looked at the Pharisees that had the power to have him put to death and ultimately did have him put to death, and he said to them, you're a bunch of snakes and vipers and whitewashed graves. That's the meek Jesus. It was Jesus who, who faced down demoniacs and called out demons. And yet, he described himself as being meek. Now, what's interesting to me about about both Moses and Jesus, is that they both were meek, very strong, but their strength restrained, their power restrained, their strength under control, but they displayed their strength, they used their strength in the defense of the honor of God and not in their own defense. It's pretty instructive to us. In fact, you're in Matthew 5, Jesus actually elaborates on this, this a little bit in verse number 38. Look at it, Matthew 5, 38. He says, you have heard that it has been said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. Here's what that means. You, you uh, gouge out my eye, I'll gouge out your eye. You knock out my tooth, I'll knock out your tooth. You hit me, I'll hit you back, hit you harder. He said, that's the way the world thinks. That's what you've heard. Verse 39, but I say to you that you are not to resist evil. But whosoever shall smite you on your right cheek, turn to him the other cheek also. Now Jesus said in these offenses, when someone offends you, you're not to defend yourself. Now don't misunderstand and don't take that text to where it doesn't go, where the Bible doesn't uh, affirm that it goes. It's not saying that, that Christians are not to, to uh, defend their children, defend their families, whatever. It's saying when you, when you are offended, simply be willing in a spirit of meekness to bear the offense and trust the defense of that to God. Verse number 40, if any man sue you at law to take away your coat, let him have your cloak also. If anybody compels you to go with him a mile, then go with him two miles. What Jesus is saying is that we are to restrain our strength, restrain our power, live with meekness, and that we would entrust those offenses to the Lord while we would live with meekness and sometimes endure those offenses. So a meek person is a person who will 
use their strength in defense of God's honor, but who is willing to yield their own rights to the preferences, or, or their rights or their preferences to another. That is to say that the meek don't always climb up on top. They don't always have to be right. They don't always have to be first. Now, it might be a good exercise to think about, well, if that's the definition of meekness, strength restrained, person who is gentle and kind and, and courteous, then what would be the opposite of meekness? It's pretty easy to answer that question, right? The opposite of meekness. Somebody who is the opposite of meek would be a person who is vengeful, who takes revenge instead of turning the other cheek. It would be a person who holds a grudge, is unforgiving. It would be a person who in their dealings with others is just harsh and angry. A a person who is self-important or arrogant. These would be the opposites of meekness. Now, Jesus didn't say, blessed are the self-important, blessed are those who always stand up for for their rights, blessed are those who are arrogant. He said, blessed are the meek. Now, why would Jesus say this, by the way? It's a pretty good question because it's so counterintuitive to us and it's very counterculture. So why does Jesus raise the value of meekness so much? The Bible gives us a number of reasons why meekness matters. Why it's valuable. I'm going to give you four of them really quickly. So you're going to have to write fast. But I want you to jot these down. The Bible tells us, first of all, that meekness beautifies the Christian life. Meekness beautifies the Christian life. Now, I'm going to turn to Ephesians chapter number 4, if you want to turn there with me. But I only want to read a couple of verses. Listen to Ephesians 4, verses 1 and 2. Paul writes, I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you, urge you, that you would walk worthy of the vocation wherewith you have been called. In other words, you've been called to Christ. You're in his kingdom. Now, Paul says, I want you to live in a way that beautifies that calling or befits that calling. Live a life worthy of being a child of God. Verse 2, here's what that looks like. With all lowliness and meekness. (laughs) Do you find that interesting? That when the apostle Paul describes the Christian life and the life that's worthy of bearing the name Christian, The first thing he says is that you ought to walk in a way that's meek and that is lowly. It beautifies our Christian life. Number two, the Bible says that meekness seeks to restore fallen ones. You know what's true in the body of Christ? Sometimes people are going to stumble, right? They're going to fall. They're going to backslide. They're going to walk away from the Lord. You know anybody that's ever done that? Sure you do. Is it you? Have you walked away from your faith, away from the Lord? It's going to happen sometimes. And when it happens, what happens too often is that people within the church, what do we do too often to people who stumble and fall in their faith? We kick them. We say things like, well, I knew that was going to happen. I never, I knew they wouldn't stand. I can't, I'm, I'm not shocked at all that they would do such a thing. I saw that coming. We're hard on them. We, 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 we call them out, but not in love. And the Bible says that when we have meekness, we will not do that, but rather we will restore them. Galatians 6.1 says it. Beloved, if any man is overtaken in a fault, you which are spiritual, restore that one in a spirit of meekness. Lift them up. Number three, 
The Bible says that meekness makes our witness winsome. Meekness makes our witness winsome. 1 Peter chapter 3 and verse number 15 says this, But sanctify the Lord God in your hearts and be ready always to give an answer to every man for the reason, for the hope that lies within you. Give them this answer with meekness. That is, that our witness for Jesus, when we talk about the hope of Christ within us, that we share it with a meek Spirit, now listen to me, listen. If you're the kind of Christian who walks around to your non-Christian family and friends with an attitude that, that presents something like this, well, you know what, I go to church because I'm a Christian, and you ought to too because you're probably going to hell and you need to straighten up. It's probably not going to work out too well. That's not very winsome. And what you ought to do is give an, a, an answer, give a reason, be able to give a reason why you have hope in Christ But you do that not with a spirit of spiritual pride or arrogance, but with a meekness. Number four, meekness is essential to the local church. I'm going to tell you what. If we want to be the church that God wants us to be, there better be a spirit of meekness in this place. Because the Bible says in um, uh, 2 Timothy chapter number 2 that there are people within the body of Christ and people in our community who are taken captive by Satan at his will. And if we want to minister to them effectively, we have to do so in a spirit of meekness. Four things. Meekness beautifies the Christian life. It seeks to restore the fallen ones. It makes our witness winsome and it's essential to the local church. So, if we want to have a life that honors Christ and if we want to help our fallen brothers and if we want to be the kind of Christian that is effective in reaching lost people, helping them come to faith in Jesus. And if we want to strengthen our church, then we should seek to be meek. We should seek to be meek. So let me close our time together by by giving you how, the how-to. How can I seek to be meek? Three quick solutions. Write them down. Number one, if you want to be meek, do what Jesus said, and that is come to him. Come to Jesus. Now, I'm going to go back to Matthew. You're in Matthew 5 still, but go to Matthew chapter number 11. I mentioned this verse a moment ago, but I want you to see it in Matthew 11, verses 28 and 29. Come unto me, all you that labor and are heavy laden, Jesus says, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I am meek and lowly in heart, and you shall find rest to your souls. If you want to be meek, come to Jesus. Listen, for some of you, that simply means that you need to come to Jesus for the very first time. You need to trust Christ as your Savior. You've never done it before. And you need to, as we learned last week, have a poverty of your spirit, recognize your spiritual bankruptcy, mourn over that sin, and in humility, come to God for salvation. Come to Christ for salvation. Trust in the crucified and the risen Savior to be your personal Savior. For some of you, that's what it means. But there's a broader invitation here. And it's that Jesus is saying, even to those of us who have already come to him for salvation, he's saying, come to me. Come and enter into my yoke. Come and surrender fully to my leadership and my lordship and and watch my example and learn from my, my practice and do what I do. And we do that as we spend time with Jesus, as we spend time in personal devotion and I'm in the word and I'm praying and, and I'm serving and my heart is fully devoted to the Lord, I'm spending time with Jesus and his meekness is rubbing off on me.
can I, can I just cut to the quick for a minute? If you're willing to let me get a little close to home, would you say go for it, preacher? <laughs> okay. You show me a Christian, a tr- truly a Christian, who in their general disposition is harsh and unkind and vengeful and angry and uncourteous. That's their general disposition of life. You show me that Christian, and I will show you a Christian who spends very little time with Jesus. It's true. Because when we come to Jesus, his humility and meekness rubs off on us. Now, can we be honest? I can tell you that I know by the end of every week if I'm spending time with Jesus, and so does our staff. (laughs) Because when I'm spending time as I should with Jesus, there's a humility and a meekness about me that is not present when I'm not spending time with Jesus. If you look around and you go, what's wrong with my life? Why am I this way? Why am I so frustrated? Why am I so angry? Why am I so, so quick to snap and respond and react? and be? Why? I'm a believer. I know Christ is my Savior. Why am I doing that? I'd be willing to bet you almost anything you're spending very little time with the meek one. Okay? Number two, if you want to be meek, come to Jesus. Number two, if you want to be meek, walk in the Spirit. Walk in the Spirit. Galatians chapter 5. Turn with me. Galatians 5. First of all, verse number 16, Galatians 5, 16 says that we should walk in the Spirit and that if we walk in the Spirit, we will not fulfill the lust of the flesh. It means the way of my life is the way of the Spirit. I'm cooperating with the Holy Spirit. I'm surrendering my life to the Holy Spirit. I'm asking and inviting the Holy Spirit, the the indwelling Christ that dwells within me, to live the life of Christ out through me. I'm dying to my demands. I'm dying to my, my, my fighting against him. I'm dying to pushing him away so I can do my thing. No, I'm just saying, Lord Jesus, I'm yours. Holy Spirit, just live through me. And he says, if you'll do that, the fruit of that, the result of that will be meekness. Look at verse 22. Galatians 5 and verse 22. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faithfulness. Verse 23. Meekness, meekness. The Holy Spirit produces meekness. The measure of meekness in our lives is directly correlated to the power of the Spirit in our lives and our willingness to cooperate with Him. Finally, and and, uh, number three, if you want to seek to be meek, come to Jesus, walk in the Spirit. Number three, and this will surprise you a little bit, but I'll show you why it's true. Stop looking for contentment in worldly gain. Stop looking for contentment in worldly gain if you want to be meek. 1 Timothy teaches us this, chapter number 6. 1 Timothy chapter number 6. Now, I began our time together today by saying to you that prosperity tends to skew our view of blessing so that we think that I am godly or experiencing God's goodness and blessing when I have gain. Well, we're not the first people to struggle with this. Because Paul wrote to Timothy about these people in 1 Timothy chapter number 6. Look in the middle of verse number 5. He said, supposing that gain is godliness. Supposing that gain is godliness. That when I have much, then I have God. When I have much, I have God's blessing. That's the prosperity gospel. 
And what Paul says to Timothy in this passage is, look, people who live their lives in the pursuit of wealth are headed for great sorrow. Let me show it to you. Look at it in verse number 9. He says in verse 9, But they that will be rich fall into temptation and into a snare and into many foolish and hurtful lusts which drown men in destruction and perdition. Verse 10, For the love of money, the pursuit of money, the love of money, the greed for money is the root of all evil. Now, loved ones, listen to me. Listen carefully. Paul is not criticizing uh, financial success. He's not criticizing um, working hard. He's not criticizing wealth. Not at all. Nowhere does the Bible criticize wealth. What he is saying is when you believe that your wealth equals or measures the standard of blessing or when your pursuit of life is for the things of this world, you're headed for trouble. If contentment for you means having more, then you're headed for trouble and you will not be meek. But rather, he says, look at verse number 11, rather than seeking happiness and contentment in this world and its game, verse 11, flee these things and follow after righteousness, pursue righteousness and godliness and faith and love and patience, and do you see it? And meekness. Now again, all Paul is saying to Timothy to warn his, uh, his listeners is that if I live in this world as a son of God, as, the, as a person of the kingdom, and yet I, I never pursue the kingdom, I never pursue the king, all of my life is in the pursuit of gain in this world. He says, you're not going to be meek. You're going to head for trouble and sorrows and piercing your soul with many sorrows. You're headed for, for destruction. And why would you do that anyway? Because remember the beatitude? Blessed are the meek. Why are they blessed? What is their blessing? For they shall inherit the earth. What does that mean? It simply means that there's coming a day when our King Jesus is coming. The King is coming. And when he comes, Revelation 19 says, we're coming with him. And we will rule and reign with him. And in that day, the king's kids will reign in this world. The world will be ours. So he says, why would I spend my life in this earth, my 70 or 80 years, pursuing the things of the world, getting my little bit in this life that I can? I praise God for what he gives me. I'm content with what he gives me. I'm going to work hard, be successful, do what I can. But I'm not pursuing, it's not the pursuit of my life. Why would I spend that as the pursuit of my life, trying to get my little bit, when, when my father comes? It's all, it's all ours. And we will rule and reign with him. So Paul warns Timothy, or tells Timothy to warn those that he's pastoring, that they are not to pursue contentment and wealth, but rather they are to pursue meekness. Now, an inheritance is future. That future day is coming. I can be content with what God gives me now, and I can wait until that day when in the kingdom all things are fulfilled. So evil men may prevail, may have prevailed when Christ was here, and they still do today. And despots might reign, and tyrants might rule, and governments might take, and, and all these things might be true in this world that we're living in. 
But take hope, Christian. You are a child of the King. And so as you live in this world, content with what God provides you, you seek Him, you walk with meekness, and you will inherit the earth.